Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So, the CEO of Deliberate and Not Afraid LLC and a co-owner of Call Your Girlfriend LLC. I'm Ann Friedman, CEO, president, and pretty much everything of Lady Swagger Inc. and also a co-owner of Call Your Girlfriend LLC. Hey, girl. <laughs> Are you ready to talk about self-employment? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. My tax stuff is staring me in the eye. So I'm a little I'm not going to lie to you. The, the anxiety is jumping out. But also, uh, you know, the pleasure is jumping out. So it's cool. It's admin season. Like it cannot be denied that it's admin season. Okay, so we are both self-employed humans. We were having a conversation some months ago about the ways in which the skills we have had to develop in working for ourselves and on our own do and don't translate to staff employment. And also about some of the myths surrounding self-employment that I think are perpetuated by a lot of self-labeled creative class digital people who are like, this is a thing that everyone should aspire to. So we kind of want to talk about this whole cocktail of stuff. Right. I mean, it probably helps to talk about how we ended up being self-employed, right? I agree. Um, how did you end up self-employed? Woo, child. My serotonin went to war. My dopamine <laughs> went to war. Nobody is back yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you ended up self-employed. That's how I ended up self-employed. All my life I had to fight for myself. I started off in like office jobs because that's the immigrant thing that you're supposed to do. I worked at a bunch of different places, like at a think tank, at a marketing PR place, at a digital PR place. And then my last real job was at a tech company, um, the artist, <laughs> the artist formerly known as Google. You might know her as Alphabet. And, <laughs> you know, even in between the different jobs that I had had, I definitely had like a tiny period where I had dipped my foot into trying to do freelance and it was too early. It was like, whoa, like you got too much dip on your chip, Amina. Like it was too <laughs> early and I like, it didn't work out and I went back like full time. I think I, it, like, I literally lasted like 60 days and then I went back into for real work, like went back into working at an office. And I think that what I did in then was try to do like a little bit of, comms consulting and then some writing which lol lol like you know that did not pay the bills for me the real reason that i ended up self-employed honestly is because i was reaching like maximum burnout at work and also like for me that was really colliding into a lot of health issues that i didn't know that i had uh it's like i was working too much i was i like i hated living in san francisco like the work itself was not overwhelming, but I just like threw myself into work because I hated everything else, you know? And at the same time, like it turned out that I had the early beginnings of cancer, which I like didn't know about, but it just meant that I was tired all the time. I had all this, like, just like my body was failing me. And so when I like looked in the mirror and I was like, well, you know, like you can keep doing this thing or I can take some time out to like actually uh, figure out what is wrong with me. 
And uh, and at the time, Wait, like you mean pro- the American workplace is not a good place to heal and figure out what's going on with your body. Weird. No, but, you know, honestly, <laughs> and like it's like in hindsight that I recognize that those are the choices that I made at the time. I was just like, I'm fully just like fed up. I'm fed up. Mm. of You know, I'm fed up of living here with the robot Americans like I'm just done. You know, and now with a lot of looking back, it was like, oh, no, the reasons I was miserable are actually 100 percent because I had cancer and I didn't know about it. And so thinking back about, you know, just the the pressure that I felt never taking time off to go to the doctor or how annoyed I was at the fact that my body couldn't keep up with where my brain was or the productivity level that I had. Like, I'm only recognizing now that this was like part of the issue at the time. I was just like, I am fed up. But also... A thing that I was really lucky to do is that I got to quit a big, well-paying tech job and then essentially like freelance did that exact same job. And so, you know, in the beginning, like really what it meant was like, oh, I can do this at home without my pants on. No bra, you know, and nobody like hovering kind of over me. I wasn't part of an institutional mandate. I had become a contractor. For me, emotionally, that remove was like huge. It was huge to feel like, okay. I'm not like part of a team in the way that you are part of a team if you have to go into an office every day. And that removed like a ton of pressure for me. In the meantime, we had also formed CYG LLC. Oh, wow. Did that happen like right around the time that you, I guess that's true. We had started doing yeah. the, when we started doing the podcast, we started doing you were the podcast before. still yeah, I, staff employed. Yeah. I was still staff employed when we were doing the podcast. And so through doing some of the podcast stuff it just gave me a lot of knowledge and also like honestly a confidence boost to be like oh we're not going to irs jail we can do this and so my path to self-employment was like very circuitous and honestly like yeah it's like at the beginning i did mostly like my entire consultancy was like built on doing uh tech marketing and today that is zero percent of my work Okay, so when was your the last day of work you put in as a staff member full time in an office? Summer 2015. Dang. Four years. That seems truly wild. I could not have predicted that. Well, my last day of full time employment in an office was May 31st, 2012. Wow. (laughs) I know. I know. About to be going on my eighth year. I became self-employed because I got fired. (laughs) You know, the tale that everyone always loves to think about when they think about how they will start their like much anticipated self-employment period. It for me did not start as like a plan. It did not start as a, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm definitely going to be self-employed. I had been working at a magazine and I had been an editor for a long time, like six years or something like that, a magazine editor. And I really just didn't want to move to New York, which is where all the magazine editing jobs were. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to stay in Los Angeles and see, see about this writing thing. Like maybe see if I can make some money in the interim while I figure out how to reconcile the fact that I want an editing job, but editing jobs do not exist in the city that I really love living in. And so there was a period of time, a couple of years at least, where when I would meet someone new and they would ask what I did, I would be like, I used to be an editor. I, I'm kind of writing now. I don't know. I'm a writer. I'm a journalist, sort of. You know, I, I didn't have a clear... You didn't have, <laughs> had, you didn't have a pitch down? <laughs> I know. I didn't have a one-sentence description of what I did for a living. That was not due to the fact that I wasn't working because save for like a maybe two-week period of like just getting stoned in my underwear and not working after being 
fired, I was like, okay, like got to pay the bills and started accepting writing assignments. And so at the time, most people were asking me that I could have said, yes, I'm a self-employed writer. It took me a shockingly long amount of time to do that. And then it took me also about three years before I incorporated myself. I mentioned that distinction because I think that it marked a real turning point for me and how I thought about self-employment. So those first three years from like the middle of 2012 to probably like the middle of 2015 or maybe the end of 2014, I was 100% a freelancer. You know, I took assignments from magazines and from digital publications. I worked really, really hard for not a lot of money per word, which means I had to write a lot, which means I spent a lot of hours hunched over my laptop. And I didn't really have the structural supports of a business. And I mean, and yes, I mean that in the sense of health insurance and all the things you think about with a staff job. But I also mean in things like I did not have a business bank account. I didn't really have a sense of myself as like, this is a business. I was still like, I just work for other people. And I think for me, deciding to incorporate, deciding to start making money off of this email newsletter that I send and selling ads in it, all of that stuff happened in 2015, which again is right around the time I think we incorporated Call Your Girlfriend as well. And all of that marks this shift where I'm like, oh, from that point on, I do feel I'm really self-employed. I'm not exclusively working for other people on a contract basis. A large portion of the work I do is for myself or for myself and my collaborators in like the case of Call Your Girlfriend. So that's how I ended up self-employed. Um, that is how I talk about my situation now and why I think it's important to distinguish like you and I, you know, as people who are incorporated business ladies who have, have a diversified income stream from people who are in what I would say is a more precarious position of freelancing for like on a 1099 basis for a variety of places. So I don't know. I think these are all like nerdy but important distinctions when you say self-employment. You also had that period when you were in Austin where you were freelancing. Yes, where much you, like, like you. You, yes. you dipped your toe in and then dipped back out. So like we had some sort of idea about what that looked like. Oh my God, completely. At the end of 2010, I was like, I don't want to live in DC anymore. I don't want to put up with these people who have decided not to promote me. Uh, I am striking out on my own. Kind of like you post-tech job in, in the sense of I had a, I think I had a small contract to continue doing work for the magazine that had employed me as an editor, but I lasted two months max as a self-employed freelancer in that phase. And I think there are two big differences between that period and between my post being fired period of being self-employed. And that is one, I, I had a little bit more experience. Like in 2012, I had had a job previously where I had to oversee a budget and I had to think about business things in a way that I hadn't really had to before my first freelance attempt. That made a big difference. I mean, I was also a little bit more motivated by circumstance. I had, I was like, I don't want to leave this life I've set up for myself in Los Angeles. So I'm going to find a way to make it work. I was like kind of deciding to go towards something as opposed to deciding to leave something. And I think those two distinctions of experience and then the sense of like, okay, I'm actually doubling down on the things I do want rather than saying no to the things I don't want made all the difference for me and what took. Right. We knew what the turmoil of not being tied to an institution look like because I think that while a lot of people talk about the freedom of it the first time that I at least try to you know like freelance or work for myself or whatever 
the instability of it all was terrifying to me. I think the first time that I had done that, I had saved up like the proverbial, like you need three months of, uh, you know, like a three month cushion of rent and bills and whatever. That did not seem like nearly enough money. Even the the payment cycles that were on, like some of the places that I billed to were like on a 90 day payment. 90 you know, like, days? Cycle. Oh my oh, God. Oh yeah. I, there are like a couple of people that I work for that are like on a 90 day payment cycle. But, you know, like just thinking really about the instability of it all and how... I personally was just like not set up for that yet. I did not know how to live off of a couple of paychecks a year. I didn't know. And like, forget the money part, like the actual, like how I'm spending money. Like what I really wasn't set up for was to find work, mm. you know, and the kind of work that I like to do and the kind of work that would be fulfilling and the kind of work that was, you know, like contracts that I would be okay, like living with essentially like that just took a while. And I think that, you know, while it is like a huge privilege to say, uh, you know, that I had saved up like three months, like on the first end that I had saved up three months of rent, like my financial situation is also that I support my family. And so I don't even know where I found the like time to like it took me forever to save up three months of rent, like truly like forever, like years. Absolutely. And and then when I think about the, the actual like big leap that I did after Google, it was a little bit easier financially because I was sitting on a stack of cash. You know, where it was like, well, this should probably go towards like buying a house or it should go towards like something that is not like blowing up your entire career away (laughs) and doing that. But like when you work in tech and you make a lot of money and, uh, you know, they like give you stock or whatever, there's all this money that you can play around with. And so I remember like talking to somebody about like financial advice back then and them just telling me like, "Mm, you know, like that's not a great idea is to use this money to live on like you should put it in a savings account or you should put it in a, you know, like that should be, that's the down payment for a house, like all of these other things. And I was like, no, this is the down payment on me taking a risk for myself. And I'm really glad that I did that, but it was, it was terrifying, but it was not nearly as terrifying as it was the first time around. I mean, let me tell you, I was not leaving when I got fired, was not leaving sitting on a pile of cash. In fact, they wanted me to sign an NDA in order to get a severance. And I refused um, I remember that. That's and, my girl. Yeah. And, but it also means I got no severance. Like I, they were only offering two weeks anyway, but I had like, you know, it was basically pushed straight out of the nest and like I hit the ground hard and actually like in the metaphor of the ground, like went beneath the ground because I was in a significant amount of credit card debt. I ran through the small savings that I had. It was honestly like the, the sort of thing where I hate like all these buzzwords of like self-employment is risk or like whatever and it the, is though <laughs> well no I mean it is but I, I think that that actually downplays the fact that the amount of risk you can take is completely related to the amount of privilege that you have and the fact that I was able to bounce back at all like I I really do count I mean yes hard work like obvi yes I will always credit myself for being a hard worker but like luck and privilege big parts of it <laughs> I know, you know, but when I think about like a lot of people like me, my financial privilege is literally confined to like the last three years of my life. Right. I'm not set up by family or by society or by anything else. And if anything, the way that I still spend my money, it's like legit, like underprivileged people. I'm like, I'm like a classic, like African, like support my entire family. You know, I was like, I need to start making real cash because I have some real bills. But so anyway, like when I think about like that narrative also, you know, of like the amount of privilege and of luck that it takes, that is a thing that like for a lot of people of flavor, like scares us out of um, 
taking a chance for ourselves sometimes Mm -hmm. because it's the kind of thing that like it is a crapshoot right like I could have done this and it wouldn't have worked out but also I come from the kind of life where like things have to work out otherwise (laughs) like there's just no there is something both like terrifying and a little soothing about it in the sense where you're like oh I actually do have to figure it out because I don't have a security net like there is no net here not and not some like invisible like oh I can go back and live with my parents or I can, I was like, I don't have any of that. So like, if I leap, like I have to fly, you know, but at the same time, like this, the the myth of like the happy freelancer or whatever, when I think about that, especially in like our media tech circles, it's always like beautiful white people doing beautiful white, like people things. And at the same time, I was like, oh, they're trying to scare us out of this thing because (laughs) there, you know, it's like if it works out, there is a lot of reward on the other side of that. But it is terrifying. So I guess this is just a rambling way of saying that, like, it cuts both ways, you know? Yes. And it's such a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Right. You don't want to deny the privilege involved in being able to do it, but you also want to encourage all kinds of people to take the risks and take bets on themselves. Right. Because like a clear privilege that you and I have also is that like, you know, we ain't got no kids and we ain't got no problems. And so when I think about like the kind of person who can literally say like, I want to take a chance on myself or I don't want to, you know, like the life that I've built here is great for myself. Like those people tend to be like no kids, no mortgage. We're outliers in that sense. Outliers in every way, boo boo. Yeah. (laughs) Like coastal elite outliers. Um. Okay, maybe we should take a, a tiny ad break and then talk about the the good and the bad and the nuts and the bolts of what it is to work for yourself. Okay, so one thing I hear a lot from people who are five to 10 years younger than I am, that kind of like step or two earlier in their career, is that they really want to be self-employed. I'm sure you hear this all the time too, right? Yes, I hear it about you all the time. Oh my God, stop it. Um, <laughs> all these all these media babies were like, I want to live like Anne Friedman in a Los Angeles bungalow. How do I do that? I was like, you should get fired from a big job and you can do that. <laughs> Just decouple yourself from other people's goals. That's all I, that's my number one, <laughs> number one piece of advice. Um, but yeah, and so we went hunting for a survey and of course, LOL, there was like a survey of millennials saying, 67% of employed millennials want to leave the traditional work structure to become self-employed, which again, we said earlier, self-employed, people are not always using that term the same way. I'm sure those people do not want to become gig economy 1099 workers on a hamster wheel, like just trying to make ends meet. I'm sure those people have some kind of idealized version of what self-employment might be like. So maybe we should talk about the reality a little bit, like your day to day. Man, you know, the day-to-day is really interesting. Again, when I left my tech job and I had a tech contract, my day-to-day, besides the fact that I could work from anywhere I wanted, seemed all good at the time, right? Like, okay, I don't have to go into an office. What? I don't have to go to these stand-ups and the all-hands. I'm just responsible for, like, specific pieces of the puzzle that need to get made. Like, this is great. And you weren't horrified by the tax bill? (laughs) (laughs) um thank you you know what I mean but then but then reality starts setting in first of all depending on your personality and who you are like 
not having like a structure to your day can be like very destructive to the rest of your like mental health and life and a lot of things. And it turns out that I'm one of those people cannot be left to my own devices. And then there is also the thing about like learning you are your own boss now, like in the sense where like you're your own manager, you are your own boss, you are your own HR, you are your own, like you're everything. You are doing everything and you need to like figure out a way to put on all those hats at different times of the day and give yourself the semblance of normalcy. For me, that was it was really important to like really sit down with myself and be like, okay, what does the day look like nine to five? Because this can't turn into like, we're just fucking around and going to movies when we want to, like going to museums at 4 p.m. stoned because like, like that's what that's how Wait, I want to live. So what? So how, how did you do that? Did you make yourself like a did you make a date with yourself to sit down and make a schedule or how did you learn? How did you learn what that schedule needed to look like? I think I failed a lot in the beginning it, because the day was so unstructured. I felt like if I wanted to go to lunch with a friend, I could like I could just pick up and do that. If somebody wanted to have a call, I could just do that. And then I felt like I was my days were a lot of chaos. And so I basically sat down and I was like, what do I want like nine to five to look like? And what is the one thing that can ground me? And it's going to sound really dumb, but for me, like it ended up being lunch. I was like, it is very important to me that I make lunch at home as many days as the week as I can. It was also important to me that I work in chunks of time that could be uninterrupted. Whether it was like, okay, from seven to seven to 11, like I am sitting at the desk and I'm doing something and there's no calls, no breakfast, no nothing. Like that was something that was important for me to protect. Also just like figuring out like how to get a rhythm for both like the busy kind of work that you have to do and then also like making room for the creative big thinking picture stuff that you have to do and also the life admin that you have to do that is just like again like when I say that you're every part of a business like you have to take care of your own overhead now for me that ended up meaning like blocking a lot of time to do specific tasks I'm somebody who struggles a lot with that and it turned out that it was like it was very helpful I've been doing it for long enough now that I have a very clear sense for myself of like, okay, on Sunday night, like what do I want Monday through Friday to look like and really sticking to that. Yeah. I think for me, it was the, the idea of thinking about weeks as opposed to days. Like the thing about my days is my, my body and my brain kind of regulate. Like I've got my good concentration hours in the morning. And if I don't spend those wisely, the writing is not getting done in the afternoon. Most of the time, like most of it. And so I think just being responsive to that in a day-to-day way was maybe more intuitive for me. It's also intuitive actually for me on the time zone schedule where most of the people I work with, including you, my beloved friend and co-host, are on the East Coast, which means that mornings are more productive times to be in collaboration with people too for me on the West Coast. That's so funny. I love working the other way around because it means that I get mornings to myself and then all of my like tech work and a lot of my like creative work flows West and then I don't have to deal with it. It's like mornings are my own. Oh, it's almost like we're both happy in the places where we live. <laughs> Ooh, child. Um, I know, but that's luck. I know. But but I think the thing for me that ha- that was really revelatory was thinking about my life and then my money as well in terms of weeks. And so like one reason why I started doing an email newsletter on Fridays is because I was really feeling the sense of 
oh God, I've just been head down and really in it. And what did I really do this week? What did I read? What did I write? Who did I talk to? What, how did I move closer to anything I actually care about? And sitting down to write a newsletter is a practice that in the very beginning was just that, a practice for myself to kind of orient my week and, and to think a little bit about making a catalog of what I'd consumed and produced. That is not something that I ever felt the need to do when I was on staff. And it really also shapes the way I schedule now moving forward. So Friday mornings are set aside to do the newsletter, but also, you know, there's, we usually podcast at the beginning of the week. Like my, my weeks tend to have this structure to them that is um, a little bit more reliable week to week than my days are day to day. And that really works for me too. And I think despite all of the caveats we gave about money and needing to do so many things for yourself, that is one reason why I'm ultimately so happy self-employed is that I get to not only learn that about myself, but then set that rule of like, it's fine that no two days look alike. And it's actually fine if I take some time off in the middle of the day to get stoned and go to a museum, as long as it's not like, every day of the week. I only, I only get one of those a week or something like that, you know? And so, so the weekly model has been very important for me. And also early on, I made most of my money on recurring columns that I wrote once a week. And so again, that scheduling wise, I'd be like, okay, so I set aside this day to pitch for that column and this day to write the other column. And then it added up to making some kind of structural sense. But I, I would say like the biggest thing that I had to learn, you know, if I could travel back in time to those early days of freelancing, I would really just remind myself that I was a business. I'd be like, listen, I know that you are full-time writing and it feels like you're not a boss anymore or you don't have to worry about budgets or spreadsheets or planning, but holy hell, please get a business credit card immediately. (laughs) Like, you know, start to think of yourself as much as possible as a one person business. Because once I started to do that, I really, I feel like um, my schedule got a lot more humane. Yeah. I mean, let's get into that then, because I do think that this thing about seeing yourself as a business is so, that took me a while to see, because like you in the beginning was just a 1099 employee where I was like, I make things for other people. And it took me a while to be like, no, actually, I want to set up a company that makes things for other people. And I like that distinction was so important for me. Like it's an identity level distinction. Yeah. I mean, not to like me. I am obviously the one like doing all the things. But having the front of an LLC, even though like it is it is like literally a pass through that is done for taxes. Having that like incorporating for myself, like change the way that I thought about how I produced work. And I think like ultimately like made me more accountable to the work that I was making Mm. because it just seemed like a scaling up, you know, and a thinking of like, okay, what does this company do and uh, and what do I want it to do and what kind of work do I want it to, to, to produce, which felt so much less daunting somehow, or I guess like felt so much less pressure than like. I only have 24 hours in the day like Beyonce. Like, why am I not (laughs) doing Beyonce level work? I think that, like, it did that for me. But, like, back to the money, figuring that out also, like, how cash flow worked. And I think that at that point I had been doing it enough that I knew – I basically knew how to, like, chase a contract, like, get signed on, onboarded, you know, like, that whole, like, song and dance that you have to do to get work that I felt confident enough that I was like, okay – there is actually like a way to structure all of this so that it seems um, I can both have like a little bit of personal removed from it 
and also feel that I'm a good steward of the company that I've set up, essentially. Oh my and god. So sorry, I just want to I want I relate to one piece of this so much because I think for me, I actually went through and wrote some form emails or some rules. It's like we don't work unless a contract is signed. We here at Lady yes. Swagger Inc. We here at Lady Swagger Inc. don't work for free unless these three conditions are met. And I do work sometimes and for less than we my rate. Um, we have those rules at deliberate and not afraid. Isn't that wild? It's wild. But like that, that idea too, because I think actually people, please, please check me on this if you disagree, but I think people really respect you a lot more if you say, listen, I have a policy of only doing X versus, hey, look, I would really appreciate it if you could get me a contract before I start this work. It's like, no, yeah. my policy is X. And I don't know, like people can really, I feel Tell the difference when you are coming from a place of my, my one woman corporate policy. I think that people can tell the difference, but I also think that honestly, that the thing that has happened is that it just, it took you a while to figure it out. And so you have, you have more of a sense of worth and you are also like clear about your boundaries, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that it is like both things, but again, like part of having a corporation is that you do have clear boundaries. Like that for me was like a huge, like, you know, it's like galaxy brain exploding and and you're right. That's also the time where I was like, okay, like here's the kind of work that I want to take. Here is the the floor of money that I need to make to to live kind of like at the lifestyle that I have and and also be fulfilled. And that was like it was like oh like we can do this. But also you know like to be honest, I just been doing it enough that I knew I knew how to handle cash flow. I knew how to track money at that point. You know, if you don't have uh, if you don't have a bookkeeping system, you're a fool. You should get a bookkeeping system. Um, uh, it, a spreadsheet, a book, like a, a QuickBooks, a whatever you need, like something that is just your business money. A yeah. QuickBooks, a human being. Like this is also the time where honestly, there is me, Amina, like the my money and the things that I do and how I spend. And then there is the company money. And getting into that mindset of like, oh, actually, like I work to pay myself was something that was also like a, like an illuminating process for me. Like I have a, a credit card for my company, which is like the best advice you've ever given me. You were like, oh, if you just get a work credit card, it's easier to keep track of expenses. Galaxy brain. Like, like <laughs> this is crazy. But the thing that that also did for me was like, well, you know, like I have a company credit card and I don't do personal expenses on that credit card. Yep. And it's been like really good to separate that out. It's like, sure. Even though, like, I would love to buy a biologique recherche on the DNA uh, tab, like, not going to do that because that is a personal expense. And so I think, too, that you just start seeing the ins and outs of how you spend money, how you can expense things, and truly, like, how you can budget and, like, the, the lifestyle that you can lead ultimately. I have a question. How did you figure out how much your time was worth? Because for me... I don't feel that I was really trained in that. Like writers are often paid per piece or per word. You're not paid per hour. And therefore, when I started to think about like, okay, if I want to make more money this year than I made last year, and I can't physically write more than I did in 2012 or 2013, how am I going to do that? And I think that part of that answer was figure out how much I want to make in a day or how much I want to make in an hour. And I, maybe it's a little different for you based on how you build, but I'm always curious about that question of like, how do you judge the value of your time in American dollars? You know, honestly, that for me also was a lot of trial and error. I think that it was a little easier for me because I tend to work more on a project base 
I think that if I'd like had to write or do it for pieces, it'd probably like drive me nuts. And so I think of my time really as a day rate or as an hourly rate. And friend of the podcast, Alana Berkowitz, um, who is on the Tech Lady Mafia listserv that Yuri Meyer and I started, gave some like really good advice a while back about figuring out your your hourly and your day rates was to take however much money you wanted to make in a year, take off either two or three zeros to figure out your hourly and your day rates. That was like, I'm not quite sure like how she came to that. But I remember just like having that as a baseline for me thinking like, okay, this just means that I can be flexible. I also work with like people from across the like money spectrum, like anywhere from corporations to like small nonprofits. And so it like really, it made me feel that like, okay, there were places where I could stick to the rate, even if it sounded outrageous to me. And honestly, like nobody has ever pushed back on it, like of the like top tier people that I work with, which makes me feel like it's not enough money. Um, but that's a conversation for a different day. And but so it meant that like be, if I could be like flexible enough to get that rate with like big corporations that if there was a nonprofit that I wanted to work with, I could be flexible with them in terms of that, you know. But I think that now it's a thing that I just know intuitively. Like I have I, I have a rule now that is like, God, this is going to get me in so much trouble with like brands that I work with, but it's fine. I have a rule now that if I get asked to do something that is it just feels like a one off or just a thing that is, you know, like it's like a nebulous amount of like time spent, you know, like, you know, like those requests where, where you're, you're not like, sure hmm. how much of your time something is really going to take. Right. Could take 30 seconds, could take four days. Like, who knows? <laughs> like the thing is just like very nebulous. I'm like, I don't get out of bed for less than a month of rent. Like that's the that's the price for doing that. Like it's not a thing that is part of my regular work stream. It is not like a way that I have factored in that I needed to make income that year. It is just like a weird nebulous opportunity that has presented itself. I was like, it has to at least be worth a month of rent. This is not financial advice. This is how I do this. And so far it has panned out. I love that. I am always curious where other people draw their boundaries. Um, one thing that's been helpful for me is not only answering some of those questions, but being a little bit more transparent with the people I work with about it. So for example, if I do take something that is almost like an in-kind donation, say it's like I'm giving my time because I care about a cause or a publication or whatever, or if I'm writing for some other reason for less than my rate, I will say that. I'll be like, listen, my rate for something like this would normally bottom out at a thousand dollars or whatever, but I'm going to write it for you for three fifty for X Y Z reason. Just know that in the future, this is not a rate that I will frequently say yes to. Slash, this is not a living wage or market rate, and that's how I get around the fact that a lot of the writing work that I do is frankly subsidized by ad income from Call Your Girlfriend or like other other business streams that I have. I recognize that by saying yes to a rate that is ultimately not a living wage. If I were just purely a freelance writer. I want something that is written that editors can use to go back to their higher ups and be like, hey, we're way under market. You know, something that is at least a trail acknowledging that I am not trying to undercut the market for other people. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Like, I don't find myself in that situation again, because, you know, I don't write uh, media notoriously cheap. But uh, 
that conversation is interesting because I realized over the last two years I do have a very firm boundary on not working for free Mm -hmm. unless it is a request from a friend and it has to be tied into a larger cause. So it's like if you were like, hey, Amina, I would love for you to like moderate my book event. This is one line of request that we get a lot that I don't think a lot of people realize. Like you and I moderate a lot of book conversations for other people. Right. With like authors who are on tour to promote a new book. Mm hmm. Exactly. That is not compensated work. It doesn't mean that I don't spend uh, the entire time reading the book. Probably, I would say, like, uh, you know, like a couple of hours prepping. All in all, it's like close to 20 hours of work, if we want to be honest. You know, like 10 maybe to be modest, but doing all the things. Like, we are good moderators of conversations. And so requests like that for me now, like, you have to be a friend. Or you have to be, you have to be somebody that I have, like, a, a connection with, at least. And then we'll talk about it. Because... I do think that it like vastly undercuts the market for other people, which is not cool, which in like I would say, like, especially in like tech and marketing, you see a lot more. Right. Moderating a public conversation is a skill that should be compensated, frankly. Yes. I'm like very good at it. Hello. So with those requests, like I have been more transparent with people where it's like, okay, like, you know, here's the deal. I'm doing this because like you are a pal or, you know, like it's a cause that I really believe in. But um this is like a thing this is not a request that you should be asking a lot of people like if you find yourself frequently asking people to work for free you should really fucking check yourself because it's gross and a lot of times you are getting paid for the thing that you are asking other people to work for free for which makes it even grosser one reason why we wanted to talk about this on an episode of the podcast rather than just on our personal text thread where we talk about stuff like this all the time is that we were talking about some people we know who are in staff jobs and about how a lot of these skills that we're talking about of like recognizing when something is getting added to your plate or like being aware of how much your time is really worth, things like that would have really helped us in our days on staff to think about our work that way. You know, yes, you don't get to negotiate with your boss about whether a project is going to require so many hours that you're undercutting your own salary, for example. However, like that is good info for you, human being, to have and to like raise at your next performance review. And the mentality that everything that you do in the scope of a job, like, is a skill. Like, that is, and that, that is presumably, like, agreed upon in a job description. And if your employer goes outside the bounds of that, you need to redraw the contract. Like, some of those ideas are things that I'm just like, I really wish more people in the working world, women in particular, were thinking about as they advocated for themselves within their jobs. I think about this all the time, and especially as it relates to women that we know in staff jobs that we sometimes have to work with, you know, like in a freelance capacity, is just this idea that, like, you can just keep adding on to the plate. Like, a thing that I wish that I, you're right, that I had known when I was working in the office is that I should probably think of every different skill that I have or think about, like, how many different projects I am juggling at work and looking at them that way. As opposed to just like, oh, I'm an analyst here or I'm a, you know, like I do X, Y, Z job here and then everything has to get done. It's like, no, like you should account more for your hours. Like one thing that is great about about the kind of work that we do is that we uh, like I at least I keep my hours down to the quarter. Like I know exactly how much like every single task that I do takes me to do. And and I log all those hours. I do not do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I'm, that's also because that's also because you're writing. But like when you're working on a project basis, like you kind of have to do that, right? You know, like that was very like eye opening for me. Like, oh, you know, like okay, like some things only take twenty five minutes to do. Some things take twenty five like hours to do. And when I started seeing it that way, like with the time tracker, it was so much easier to just to to understand like the bullshit of like what the work plate looks like, you know. And it's also like welcome to like being in a line of work where if you want more that is in the contract, you got to pay for more than is in the contract. That's how we do over here. I agree. And I think the other thing that I think about sometimes is when it comes to growing your skill set, that goes hand in hand with things getting added to your plate. Like, you know, like one reason we are even speaking today on a podcast is because a million years ago, when I believe Gina planted the seed that we should do a podcast, I was like, oh, wow, audio, a thing I don't know anything about making would probably be a cool new thing to learn how to do. Not in the sense of like, oh, I'm definitely going to add this as a revenue stream to my like independent business, um, but much more in the sense of like, this is a skill set that I want to grow. And sometimes when you're on staff, it does not come easily to think about learning new things in in that same way. You know, I mean, I would say the same thing is true with like figuring out how to monetize my newsletter. Like I could have just put a banner ad on it and kept going. And I was like, no, I want to like muddle through and figure out like this software solution and this like multifaceted way of funding it, which is honest to God, a huge nightmare most of the time. But I have learned a thing that I otherwise had no idea about. And I gave myself permission to do that. And sometimes I think about like, huh, what if I had applied that line of thinking to my staff jobs where it was possible. And the best staff jobs I had really enabled that anyway, like really enabled a lot of growth because I was pushed to do things that were outside my skill set. I have another money question for you. Hit me. How how did you figure out like basically like how you were going to pay yourself, how you were going to live and how to do that within like the inconsistent ways that like you are paid when you work for yourself? I would say for probably at least the first two and a half to three years of my self-employment, I did not. It was literally just money comes in, money goes out. I'm in a scramble. I rely on my credit card to fill the gaps. Like that is honest, the honest truth. And then once I started to get more of a foothold, which I just have to stress it, it came with having some of my own revenue streams and not always being reliant on writing contracts. That's when I was like, okay, like what what seems like a reasonable salary. That's when I started putting away the max contribution limit for a Roth IRA and, um, you know, like working backward from this is what I made last year. This is how much more I have to do if I want to save more next year. And kind of like your 101 budgeting things that I'm sure every um, personal finance book can do better than I can, but applying that to a business. And so, yeah, I just want to stress that actually answering that question of like, how much do I pay myself and how do I think about the way I'm moving my money around? It honestly felt like a privilege when I got to start answering that because it wasn't just scramble, scramble, scramble. Money goes out as soon as it comes in. And do you have a specific thing that you do with every check that you have? Like for me, it's like 25% automatically goes to a savings account for taxes because freelancer taxes are Woo, child. Like 25% goes to taxes. I send 20% to my SEP IRA. It's a kind of like retirement account that you can have if you're self-employed 
which is also great because it means that it reduces your tax burden. So it's like kind of like giving yourself a 20% raise anyway. But those are like things that I had to like systematically learn how to do. And so that also for me factors into how much I ask for when I give a rate quote for something. It's like half of it is already out of the door as far as I'm concerned. Like you don't see half of the money immediately or you shouldn't see it. And so that's the thing that's always top of mind for you. Do you have a system? I mean, I don't get it. It's different. I mean, a rate quote and a project rate are not the ways that I work. So basically what I do is I can say, okay, like here is how much I can roughly rely on based on the previous year from my newsletter and from Call Your Girlfriend, which are like the revenue streams that I own and are like fairly consistent and predictable, at least kind of like a minimum amount. And then the delta in there is what I have to make through speaking or writing or whatever, like, you know, whatever other cocktail, other, other audio things, whatever other cocktail of stuff I'm doing. And so that's usually just a hard number. And I can often know at the beginning of the year, um, like, for example, when I had a column contract, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to write one column a week and that factors out to X. And that means I need to write three more features this year in order to make up the difference or something like that. When I look at like my income as, as a pie, you know, I love a pie chart. Um, nothing is more than a, (laughs) nothing is more than a third. And so like, what's kind of nice in a way is if I had a really bad year in one area, it's like, it's okay. I mean, you know, like I feel like I am diversified enough. So like, I don't have, I, I don't have quite like that. This is my hourly rate because that's just not, how I get paid. But I do think about and rely very heavily on the things that I own. And that's why I always tell, you know, we reference those people who are a little bit earlier in their career who really want to be self-employed. I always ask, like, not just who do you want to work for as a self-employed person, but also what do you want to make and what do you want to own? What little micro business do you want to own? What IP do you want to own? What are you doing to set yourself up to have a little bit of if not passive income, at least more stable income so that if, you know, your industry kind of collapses, uh, (laughs) media, I'm sorry, but it's like, you know, you are protected in some ways from the fates and fortunes of that one big client or that one major publication that you're doing all your work for. And for me, that is more the name of the game than precisely gaming out how many projects at what rate. Yeah, I think I'm really glad that you brought that up. And especially having like a diverse stream of income is so important. Like one of the things that I always tell all the babies who are like, how do I live your life? I was like, "Mm, don't do it. But if you're gonna, uh, you know, like put your own shingle up or however that metaphor works. Yeah, hang out your own shingle. What is that weird shingle metaphor? Yeah, I don't know. You know, some like white man metaphor. But anyway, if you're gonna shingle out with the white man, you need, uh, I would say like, if you're going to strike out on your own, at least two contracts that you are working on and having like two clients that you have that are like a reliable source of income for you. And also, you know, like another thing that is helpful about this stuff, it's like talk to your other freelance friends. I remember the early days of this always like feeling like it was a scramble to the finish line. And I was like, how is everybody else making this look so good? And then I found out that like most of the women that were in my same kind of like line of work had like very rich husbands. I was like, oh, Good. Like, I was like, you also have a diverse stream of income. (laughs) (laughs) This is great. But I remember the friend who, like, told me that. She was very blunt about it. She was like, oh, the reason that, like, I can work these hours or, like, I took this job that you didn't want to take or whatever, because, you know, Shine Theory is always also... um, referring your pals for jobs that you don't take like that's how we stay happy in the freelance community and so 
remember her being like, you know, like, how can you afford to take this job that it was truly like not a good deal for a lot of other people? Like she wanted the experience, but really like the money came from like her marriage, which is like fine. This is not a knock on like people who marry rich people. I hope to marry a rich person one day. It's the whole point of that's the whole point of how marriage works, according to Amina. But so anyway, like thinking about not like comparing yourself to other people unless you have the full scope of what is going on. Right. Unless they're being transparent with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that at least like, you know, in my little like digital tech community before, um, you know, I, I don't do, I don't do that anymore. But when I did that, like I was in a crew of people that were like very transparent and very generous. And I don't think that I could have scaled myself or my business without a lot of the information that I got from them. Absolutely. And I think it is incumbent on people like us who are making a living self-employed to talk to people who are in our fields about how we make that work, you know? I mean, and I really think that there are some things that are not transferable as advice or information that are highly specific to each person. But there's a lot that is. God, I just kept thinking when I was first coming to terms with the fact that I was like, oh, I'm self-employed like for a while now. I'm not just doing a freelance writer thing while I figure my life out. I really wish that there was some kind of guide of like, okay, now you need this kind of bank account. Now you follow this guy to figure out how much money, you know, like all, like some sort of plug yeah. and play solution. And at the time I was like, oh, this is a huge opportunity. Someone should write it. And now with a little more distance, I'm like, it's unwritable for anyone but yourself. Like all you can do is really gain resources and information from the people that you know. Yeah. And, you know, and also like going back to the people that you know, like part of the reason why we were able to, to go into freelance is that we had worked at offices for so long. You know, when I think about all of the people who have hired me, like, or who hired me in the beginning, I either worked with them or I knew them or I had hired them. Like, I can't tell you how much of like my kiss down, not kiss up uh, (laughs) tactic, like came back to pay like full fold. People that I helped place are now like coming through for me in a very real way. And that was like so apparent. And so When I think about like people who are super early career, who are just like, I want to go out the gate and do this. I'm not saying that you can't do this, but like a part of the matrix that is maybe not apparent to you is that everybody kind of already knows everybody and everybody has worked together in some configuration. Right. And yeah, and it's it's absolutely, you cannot decouple the fact that I can make a living as primarily a writer from the fact that I was an editor for years and the people I'm working for were were my peers then and people whose brains I really understand now because I did their job for a long time. Like there's a lot of things that are not only related to connections that I have made, but just like things I learned in the specific set of staff jobs that I had. And I'm glad you prompted me and we both talked about our initial false start at freelancing because I think that the timing piece of it, like after you have built up a certain amount of knowledge and connection cannot be understated the importance of the timing. Right. And speaking of connections, you know, like another way, like one of the things that I do miss about office culture, um, I mean, I can't, I can't (laughs) believe that I'm going to say, I can't believe that I'm going to say that I miss it because honestly, 90% of the time I don't miss it. But there are truly days that I wish that I could turn around and have somebody like immediately there to talk to you know, or that like sense of community. 
But the truth is that like I like made that for myself within the other self-employed people that I know. And so really like seeing yourself as part of a cohort, like whether you are the person who you organize like the monthly meetup for everyone, they don't even have to be people who like do the same job as you do. They just like should be self-employed like you or whatever. Or like I have like time in my calendar that is blocked out like every month to like check in with like certain people about like certain kinds of like work that we do. You don't need to be like working in an office like side by side with people to feel that you have colleagues like Mm -hmm. your colleagues are everywhere. And so I really think that like taking your head out of the computer or like, you know, whatever it is that you do and really like making time to connect with other humans is so important. Probably the bulk of my creative spark comes from those moments. I agree. I do not feel lonely in freelancing, but that is because um, we also like build community in a concerted way. You can't do this alone. Like no one should be expected to like truly do it alone. We talk about this so much like you and I. I also hope that it inspires some people to go out on their own and take a chance on themselves because it is like truly it's a real thrill. And if anything, more people will try to hire you. I used to have the fear that like if I I left my big Google job, nobody will ever want to hire me. The opposite is quite true. People want to hire you all the time. Turns out people love not paying your benefits and getting the people, the, the benefit of your brilliant brain. <laughs> oh no, I mean like hire I mean hire me back into a full-time staff position, which is not something that I'm interested in doing, but I also hope that like for some people who've been like waffling about what they wanted to do that maybe this is a good conversation that like prompts them to actually like put their nose down and stay where they are because, you know, these like these like bullshit Jeffersonian like yeoman ethics, like it's not for everybody. And and there is a part of it that is like truly just this American ideal of like the small business owner and, you know, like just feeling like you're living off of the land or whatever. The truth is that like our government is not great to small business owners. Most small businesses like fail. And a lot of those small businesses are owned by women. That's not an accident. Instead of thinking about your career as this like ladder that you have to climb, I would look at it more from like a goal setting and from a learning perspective and saying like, What are the things that you want to do in this life? And what are the things that you want to learn in this life? And how can you set yourself up to do that? Right. And that doesn't have to follow a linear path at all. The economy is in shambles. Somebody will always pay you to like do a skill that you have. And and there's something like kind of exciting about that. Right. It's not a value judgment of like, it's better to work for yourself or to start a business or whatever. It's just sort of like, there are a very different set of pros and cons that work for both of us who have problems with authority figures. Like it is not necessarily. Right. And also, <laughs> yeah, and also have health issues and also have health issues. You sure. know, like everything has a trade-off, like the flexibility that you have on like setting your own schedule trade, like is a trade-off for something else. And I think that I am probably done, uh, not probably, I'm like 99.99% sure that I'm never working in an office again, unless it's in the White House, when I'm president, when they (laughs) change the laws on that. So, but that feels like very good to just be like, oh, like this is not a thing that I'm pursuing anymore and I'm happy, but like there are real trade-offs that were made and I'm okay with them. So you just have to pick one thing and like not look back. Right. And to all my fellow self-employed people, if you don't have a business credit card, do yourself a favor in 2019. If there's only one thing you've learned from this conversation, (laughs) make it that. Um, Get yourself a business credit card. Talk to your friends about dollars. And be, be nice to yourself. Be as good a boss to yourself as you would want someone else to be to you. That is like the end of the day, too. 
Oh my God. What is the point of working for yourself if you can't be the boss that you wish you had? Like, what is the point? I'm silent. There's no answer to that. There is no point. <laughs> There's no point. Thanks for being a good colleague, Anne Friedman. Oh my God. Love having you as a colleague. Love having Gina as a colleague. And I will see you on the internet. I'll see you on the internet and then the Google Doc soon. <laughs> you can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sidley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac.